Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings 16, we'll look at 29 to 17, 1. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, we thank you for your inspired and errant word. We thank you that it is profitable for training, reproof, for correction, that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, we believe in your word, and we believe that you have a word for us this morning. We ask that you would speak to our hearts and to our heads, not just to our heads that we might know, but also to our hearts that we might obey and do in an act of worship. Father, we thank you for this time together. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. There was a man who walked into a photo shop. He had with him a framed picture. He handed it to the owner. He said, is it possible that you can take this picture and make a copy of it so I would have two? The photo shop owner said, yeah, that's probable. He opened it up, he pulled the picture out, and on the back, he saw the following inscription. I love you. I love you forever. I will love you eternally, eternally yours, Helen. P.S. If I break up with you, I want the picture back. <laughs> Apparently, forever and eternity are not quite as long today as they used to be. Or perhaps Helen is not as committed as she stated that she is. As I think about that kind of commitment, that staying power, I think about the biblical Ruth. You remember Ruth. Ruth left her land. She left her people. She is a Jewess in a foreign land. Along with her sister-in-law, Orpah, the two of them marry Mahlon and Kilion, and their mother-in-law is Naomi. And Mahlon and Kilion both die. And Orpah does the logical thing. She returns to her people. She returns to her clan. She returns to her family. She's a young gal. The likelihood that she can be married and therefore have a future and a hope still lies before her. It's a day and age where there is no real possibility for a woman to have a reputable job and to provide for herself. And you remember that the logical thing is for Ruth to go back to her people, to go back to her clan, to go back to her family, to go back to her nation. She too is young enough to remarry. But she says to her mother-in-law, she says, your people shall be my people, in Ruth 1, 16 and 17. Where you lie, I shall lie. Your God will be my God. And she goes on and she says, may it be to me sternly, or even more so, if all that I have said does not come to pass. In other words, she will stay, she will forfeit her future, she will forfeit any likelihood of being remarried. She will stay in a foreign land 
with a mother-in-law who's insisting she goes back, but she will stay to care for this mother-in-law, knowing full well that the best-case scenario is likely that she will be impoverished. The worst-case scenario is she will be abused or perhaps worse. And yet she remains. She is committed. In spite of her surroundings, she is committed to doing what she believes to be right. And she's a model of that kind of commitment. Elijah is a model of that kind of commitment. Elijah has staying power. Elijah lived during an era that was as dark in Israel as it gets. The idolatry, the violence, the immorality in the time of Elijah far outstrips what has preceded it. And yet he has staying power, he has commitment, he has a desire to do what the Lord wants him to do. He has his eyes on God, he has his eyes on the Word of God, he is committed to carrying it through. If you're looking for a heroine in your life, you could do a lot worse than Ruth. If you're looking for a hero in your life, you and I could do a lot worse than Elijah. I want to set the stage. I'm going to go quite a bit back in history and give us a thumbnail. This is kind of where we came from. This is where we are. And maybe this is where we're going. I want to back up to the time of Moses. Moses was raised in the palace. He's an adopted son of Pharaoh. But at some point, he comes to realize that he doesn't have Egyptian blood, that he is a Jew, and he begins to be a mouthpiece for God. And he goes to the Pharaoh on behalf of God, on behalf of the Jews, and he says, let my people go. And you remember Pharaoh laughs at him because the Jews are the ones constructing the entire Egyptian empire. And so God brings a series of plagues. And the final plague is the angel of death. And the firstborn in the Egyptian families all die. And finally, Pharaoh says, go. And the Jews plunder the Egyptians and they head out. And they make their way to Yam Suf, literally the Sea of Reeds. We often think of it as the Red Sea. That's quite probable, but that's not what the text actually calls it. It calls it the Sea of Reeds. Their backs are against the Sea of Reeds. And suddenly they see the Egyptian army is bearing down on them. And they realize that Pharaoh has changed his mind. And they are trapped with the sea behind them. And God does a miracle through Moses and, and Aaron. And, and the sea divides. And they walk on dry land. And as Pharaoh's army pursues the water comes crashing down, and they enter into an area outside of the promised land. But you remember that Scripture says that they are a stiff-necked people. They are a rebellious people. The issue is not ignorance. They know what God demands. They just don't do it. And so God does not allow them to go into the promised land, the land that he had willed for the Jews to hold. And we have 40 years of wandering. 
When finally, after 40 years, after an entire generation dies off a generation of disobedience, God raises up Moses' successor, Joshua, and they enter the promised land, the land that God had promised them and still promises to them. And they conquer Palestine. And it's a wonderful time period where God goes before them and God shows the power that he has. But they take their eyes off of God. They put their eyes on of their own lives. They're more concerned with their own well-being than in advancing the kingdom. And you remember from the 14th century to the 11th century B.C., 330 years plus, we fall into the time of the judges. The judges are a time period where everyone does what is right in their own eyes rather than in the eyes of God. And there's essentially a dozen judges. None of them rule over all 12 tribes. They are geographically situated judges. And there's a cycle throughout the entire book of Judges. They take their eyes off of God and they place their eyes off of or onto things here on earth instead of things eternal, only things temporal matter. And God raises up a foreign oppressor and the foreign oppressor comes and places great oppression on the people of God and they realize their sin, and they cry out repentance, and they cry out to God, and God raises up a deliverer, a judge. And you remember that most of the judges are terrible. There's a few good ones, like Deborah, my oldest sister, is named after her. A few moderate judges, like Gideon, who is frankly given far too much credit in the evangelical world today. Not that great a man. And then there are pathetic judges like Samson, who essentially has one good moment, but most of his life is filled with immorality and idolatry. And after this period of the judges, the Jews come to God, and they ask for a king. They look around at the Girgashites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites, and they say all of these are led by a person with human flesh and blood. We need a king. And God said, I've given you a theocracy. But they don't want a theo, God rule, a theocracy. They want a monarchy, a man, a king rule. And God warns them that this is a very bad idea. But he gives them the desire of their foolish heart. And he raises up Saul, who reigns for 40 years. And Saul has, at best, no heart for God. And he's followed by David, who reigns for 40 years, who, although doing foolish things, has a full heart for God. And then we have Solomon, who reigns for 40 years. The first 20 are pretty good. He builds the palace. He builds the legislative system. He builds the Temple Mount. Under his predecessor, David, Egypt is weak. Assyria is not a power. And so the boundaries have expanded. And Solomon fortifies all of those areas. But after 20 years, he takes his eyes off the Lord. And he has a lukewarm faith. It's not that he yet denies God. He just is 
indifferent to God, apathetic to God. And then the last 10 years are utterly devastating as his foreign wives turn his heart towards idolatry that doesn't alleviate his guilt, but it explains the situation. And you remember at the death of Solomon, his son Rehoboam takes the throne. And the northern tribes, ten of them come down. And they said, we will serve you faithfully as we served your father. But you need to lower the taxes and the corvée, the forced labor, where every three months, one month we serve you and show respect to us. And if you do these things, we will serve you to our dying day. And you remember what happened. Rehoboam went to the wise sages, those individuals who had been around the block, who had wisdom of life and wisdom from God. He said, what do you say that I do? And they said, if you will just grant them these requests, they will serve you to your dying day. They're reasonable requests. But he went to his own buddies, people who had grown up with a silver spoon in their mouth, people who had grown up in the palace. And he said, what do you say that we, not I, what do you say that we do? And they essentially said, hey, who's the man? Who's the boss? You give them an inch, they'll take a mile. You need to show them who's king. And so you remember that is what Rehoboam does. And immediately, ten and a half of the northern tribes secede from the Union, take the name Israel, and are ruled by a man named Jeroboam. And Rehoboam is left with one and a half tribes' civil war. And in the north, those, those ten and a half tribes who are called Israel, they will have 20 kings. The year is 931, and they will remain in existence until 722 B.C., and at which point Assyria will come and take the northern tribes away. And this catches us up. You remember what those kings are like. This is the period of the kings, and for the south, the chronicles. In the north, those kings, we read this refrain, they did evil in the sight of God, and they followed in the footsteps of their father, or they followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam. Twenty kings, all ungodly. And this brings us to 1 Kings 16, verse 25, the sixth king, because actually the second through the fifth king we know almost nothing about. So we get to the sixth king, and we read this, Omri did more evil than all those who preceded him. Bloodshed, murder, adultery, idolatry. This was the kingdom of Omri. But he wasn't only a vile man, he was a smart man. And he looked at the ten northern tribes and he said, militarily we are weak. And so we need an alliance with another kingdom. And so he married his son Ahab to the Phoenician princess Jezebel, the Sidonian princess, the land of Baal. 
And Baal is a viewer discretion advised idol. Baal is an evil idol. One of the most pernicious ever devised by man, filled with immorality, prostitution, incest, and perhaps even rape. And this brings us to our account for today. I want to pick up and read from 1 Kings chapter 16. Let's read verses 29 to 17.1. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Judah is the two tribes down south. Ahab, he's the king of the ten up north. Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeoboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, that literally means I'm with Baal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. <coughs> he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. I'm not even going to tell you what that kind of idolatry is. That is even more degrading than Baal. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. An example that is given. In his day, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. God had destroyed Jericho. He said that it cannot be rebuilt again. And if you rebuild Jericho, your family will die. That's the prophecy. He laid its foundation at the cost of Ibram, his firstborn, set up its gates at the cost of the youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, son of Nun. As if embracing Jeroboam's idolatry were not enough, Ahab takes everything to a new level. He marries a Phoenician. He marries Jezebel. Now let's not misunderstand the text. This is not at all, not even a little bit, about a, a marriage of different nationalities. This has nothing to do with different skin colors marrying one another. You remember that Moses married a Cushite from the land of Cush, and God does not condemn it. In fact, God seems to honor it, so you have a light olive-skinned person marrying somebody from Sudan or Ethiopia from the darkest of skins. You have Priscilla and Aquila who are working side by side, one with very light skin, the other with the darkest of dark skins. The issue is not an interracial marriage. The issue is an interfaith marriage. God says that when you get set to marry, you find somebody who has like faith. Now, if you're already in an interfaith marriage, 1 Corinthians 7 says, stay in the marriage that you're in, work at the marriage that you're in, invest in the marriage that you're in. But if you're not yet married, 
You wait and find someone who loves the Lord, who honors the Lord, and that's the individual you decide to spend the rest of your life with. Ahab knew something of Yahweh, but he ignored Yahweh, and instead he decides through his father to marry the Phoenician princess named Jezebel. Her father is Ethbala. I'm with Baal or Baal. You remember in a recent election, there were buttons that said, I'm with her. He says, I'm with Baal. That is who he is. In fact, Ethbaal murdered his way to the throne. In addition to that, Ethbaal is the high priest in Baal religion. And so when she moves to Israel, she comes bag, baggage, and Baals. And immediately Ahab sets up a temple and he begins to worship this Baal. Jezebel leads Israel into Baal worship. The spirit of Jezebel is the sexual revolution of Israel back in the 10th century BC. And it is a viewer described, a viewer discerned religion. It is in every way a vile religion. Some will say, well, it's about time they open their eyes in Israel, right? I mean, some of them actually believe God. God who said in the second chapter that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh and the man and the woman were both naked and not ashamed. That's too limiting and God says no. It brings joy. It brings fulfillment. It's the right thing. To our shame, the spirit of Jezebel, the sexual revolution, continues and grows in America. And it's an empty revolution. It brings all sorts of shame and deprivation. It destroys marriages. It destroys lives. It says that things like pornography are okay when in fact it's leading entire generations to be unable to have regular or, uh, interrelationship in their marriage. It's destroying people. It's rewiring brains. It leads to things like prostitution, and it causes individuals to be objectified, and it leads to sex trafficking, which is growing at an alarming rate, and, and it leads to abortion, the destroying of human life, the sexual revolution. The spirit of Jezebel has not delivered what it has promised. It has promised fulfillment. It has delivered utter destruction. In a 2010 study by the Center for Sexual Health Promotion at Indiana University, they studied 6,000 people who were in marriage and outside of marriage, and they found overwhelmingly that those who were in a committed marriage relationship had greater joy in their lives than those who were in a lifestyle with multiple partners and embracing the sexual revolution, the spirit of Jezebel. A study in the Journal of Sexual Medicine in 29 found that the joy in marriage is actually about 600% higher than in 
higher than joy outside of marriage. In a study by the Queen's University in Belfast in Northern Ireland and published in the British Medical Journal, they discovered that long-time married men actually live five years longer on average than those who have not been involved in a long-time marriage. Yay, marriage. About the only thing they discovered that was more beneficial to not being married is you get to sleep more if you're single. I credit that perhaps to snoring partners, and you probably know who you are. To all of this, the spirit of Jezebel, God raises up Elijah. Now let me give us a quick summary of the kings that precede. Jeroboam, he's the one that did evil and set up the, the calves in the north, in Dan, and in the south, in Bethel. He's followed by Nabad. Scripture says almost nothing, but he's an evildoer. Then Baasha, who's called a murderer. Then Elah, who is called a drunkard. Then Zimri, who is called an evil murderer. Then Omri, who did more evil than all who preceded them. And then we have Ahab and Jezebel, Bonnie and Clyde, who actually do more evil than all the kings and queens prior to them. And together they set up Baal and Asherah worship. Baal is the false god of weather. Asherah is the false goddess of prosperity and finance. And they apparently cohort together. And in order to get Baal to unleash the heavens, to bring forth the rain, you would go to a temple with prostitutes and engage in immorality. And if the immorality were interesting enough to Baal, he would release the rain, which would fertilize the ground, which would bring forth the crops, a fertility cult. That's both Baal and Asherah. And into this setting, we have Elijah. Elijah suddenly appears. And we read about him in chapter 17, 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Who stands up against a king and a queen? And tells them they're going in the wrong direction. Who stands up against an entire nation and lives to talk the next day? A man like Elijah. A woman like Ruth. A woman like Deborah. Someone who is more concerned with God and the opinion of God rather than the opinion of man. As we think about Elijah, we may say, well, he's kind of hard to relate to. He's kind of one of those superstar prophets in the Old Testament. But Scripture goes out of its way to tell us there is nothing special about Elijah. In fact, it starts out by saying he's from Tishba. He's a Tishite from the land of Gilead. Now, last week I said that there were several hundred tells, 
cities built upon cities built upon cities that have not yet been excavated in Israel. In addition to that several hundred towns, there's several hundred additional villages. We know where they are. We're not even sure which villages they are, but we know where they are. But there is so much needed to be unearthed and excavated in Israel that we see these sites. We know that there are ancient cities there and nobody touches them. Universities don't come to unearth them. There's no dollars to dig them up. And so there they remain. Well, one of them undoubtedly is Tishbe. To put it another way, we don't exactly know where Tishbe is. It hasn't yet been unearthed. Now you say, well, maybe it doesn't exist. No, that's not the issue. The issue is it is so insignificant that it's among the three or four hundred places that we know there are things to excavate. There's entire villages there, but they're so small compared to the many things that we're excavating that we don't bother with them. They're second rate. They're Bumpkinville. That's where Elijah was raised. In addition, he's from Gilead. Now remember, he's ministering up north to Israel. Gilead is down south in Judah. And actually, it's on the other side of the Jordan River, on the other side of the Dead Sea. It's not even in modern-day Israel. It's in ancient and modern Jordan. This boy isn't even ministering to his own people. Go back home, Elijah. He's got no pedigree. He comes from nowhere. He's actually on the other side of the Jordan. He's not even in ancient Israel or probably Judah. And yet God raises him up. A man without pedigree, a man without training, and yet God uses him. And what does James 5, 17 say? Elijah was a man with a like nature like ours, and yet he prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years, and it did not rain. He's a man like us. He's a man that is rather insignificant. Now, if you think about a prophet, when a prophet enters a room, what does the prophet say? Thus saith the Lord, or hear the word of the Lord. That's what a prophet does. That's what a prophet says. We have it all over Scripture. What does Elijah say? It will not rain for three and a half years, or it will not rain until I say so. That's not the words of most prophets. Thus saith the Lord, hear the word of the Lord. And Elijah comes and says, hey, I want you to know until I say so, the heavens will be brass. There will be no rain. Is it possible? Is it possible that Elijah does not have a direct word to him from God? It's not only possible, it is almost certain. God has not come to Elijah and said, say this on my behalf. 
Instead, Elijah has gone to the Word of God, written hundreds of years earlier, read something, and named it and claimed it because God said it. It's as valuable 400 years ago as it is at that moment. He has gone to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. Listen to what God said. Take care, Israel, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off of the good land that the Lord is giving you. Hundreds of years earlier, God had said, Israel, if you are filled with idolatry, you take your eyes off of me and idolatry roams across the land, I will shut up the heavens. And Elijah comes along, and he believes God's word so firmly that he doesn't need another special piece of revelation. And he names it, and he claims it. Are we sure of that? Well, Again, what does James 5, 17 say? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently. Why are you praying fervently that it will not rain if God has just come to you and said, hey, you go out and say, thus saith the Lord, it will not rain. He doesn't have a direct word. He has this direct word, and this was, this is enough. It was enough for Elijah. And it's enough for us. Elijah is claiming something written hundreds of years earlier because God is relevant at any moment. And what God says hundreds of years earlier is relevant to today. And so Elijah is giving us a model of how we ought to come to the inspired and errant word when God says, in times past, God is still saying to us today, and we are to follow, we are to obey. So Elijah said it will not rain, and it did not rain, except at his word for three and a half years. As we think about the text, just a couple thoughts. Who will be the next Elijah? Will it be you? Will it be you? Will it be you? Who will be the Elijahs today? They're not necessarily only on a mission field or in a seminary or behind a pulpit. Elijahs are people who trust God, love God, love His Word, honor His Word, and are willing to speak out against the spirit of Jezebel and the sexual revolution and taking God's good gift and corrupting it, and saying this is not God's intent, this is wrong, and it will result in punishment. We need people like Elijah in the marketplace, in the neighborhoods, who will say this is the Word of God, and we trust the Word of God, and we honor the Word of God, and do so in a gracious manner. We need people like Ruth who make a commitment and said, I will die 
and be buried where you die and are buried. We need people like Deborah. We know almost nothing about this woman who became the judge. And yet God spoke and she obeyed, even risking her life in a military situation. Pedigree is optional. Elijah doesn't have one. Nothing about Elijah is impressive. James goes out of his way to say he is a man like us. And so who will be the next Elijah who will stand against the spirit of Jezebel and say, thus saith the Lord. Finally, let me read verse 17, 1 again. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. Who does Elijah stand before? The Lord. Whose eyes are Elijah on? The Lord. They're not on a political system to rescue us. They're not on a political party. They're not on, we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. They're not on other faith systems. They're not self-reliant. They're God-reliant. Elijah says, I stand before the Lord. I stand before the Lord. I love the way Paul puts it in Galatians 1.10. He said, I am not a man-pleaser. I'm a God-pleaser. That's how he lived his life. It wasn't to please man. It wasn't to please systems. It was to please God. Paul wants us. Elijah wants us. Ruth wants us. Deborah wants us. Not to be man-pleasers, but God-pleasers. For a student at school, God-pleaser is one that shares one's faith and love of Christ. Is not arrogant or haughty about faith, but just willing to share it and not willing to Embrace a cheating atmosphere or lying or foul language or immorality, but would be a light. What is a man pleaser at work? Well, she or he is about the best employee because we work heartily under the Lord, not under man. But we'll never cut corners. We'll never allow someone to entice us to be unethical. A God-pleaser is one that honors the Lord. That's the spirit of Elijah rather than the spirit of Jezebel. So who will be the one that is the next Elijah who stands before the Lord, who keeps her, his eye on the Lord? Will it be you or you or you? Or will it be me? Let's pray. Father God, we want to be God-pleasers. I think many here today are, are already God-pleasers, and yet, even for the most godly among us, there's still work to do. And we want to be a committed one like a Ruth, a sold-out in face of unbelievable obstacles like a Deborah one who has a nature just like ours and yet keeps his eyes on you like Elijah. 
a God-pleaser rather than a man-pleaser like Paul. Mold us into this. Make us into this. For your glory and our betterment. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.